When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the first episode of COVID Conspiracies, a new podcast from Post Media. I'm Monique Baudin. When the pandemic began more than a year ago, there wasn't much hope of a vaccine against a disease that had just emerged in humans. Now, though, millions of people around the world are getting vaccinated against COVID-19 every day. But not everyone will get the shot. As COVID spread around the world, so too did the anti-vaccination movement. And while the vast majority of Canadians say they'll get vaccinated, there's still around 20% of people who are vaccine hesitant, and around 7% of them say they will not be vaccinated. In today's episode, reporter Dalson Chen of the Windsor Star in Windsor, Ontario, takes us on a journey into the history of the anti-vax movement and explains why it is still going strong today. You can subscribe to COVID Conspiracies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a word for you, trypanophobia, otherwise known as needlephobia, an extreme, some say irrational fear of medical procedures involving hypodermics. It's distinct from achemophobia, the fear of sharper pointed objects. Trypanophobia specifically relates to the fear of injections connected to medicine. Less than a year after the World Health Organization declared the novel coronavirus to be a global pandemic, the first doses of a medically approved COVID-19 vaccine were being jabbed into people's arms. Health officials have described such progress as a miracle of medical technology, and now millions of Canadians, eager for a return to pre-pandemic normalcy, have been anticipating their turns to receive their shots. But a not insignificant number of people will decline. There are those who have already declined. There are people who have decided they will never again be vaccinated for anything in their lives. According to Statistics Canada, during the H1N1 pandemic of the 2009-2010 flu season, only 41% of Canadians actually received the H1N1 vaccine, despite a nationwide promotional campaign. Ontario began the world's first universal influenza immunization program in 2000. And yet the program's participation rate in the 2013 to 2014 flu season was only 34%, a significant decrease from where it had been 10 years previous. Why do so many Canadians not believe in vaccination? Where is their fear coming from? Alison Meek is an associate professor in history at King's University College at the University of Western Ontario. She's been examining public reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic from an historical perspective. According to her research, we only need to go back about 20 years to find a major growth moment in modern anti-vaccine sentiment. Dr. Andrew Wakefield's 1998 research paper that attempted to link vaccines with autism spectrum disorders, a paper that has since been thoroughly discredited and disproven. 
He was not the only author, but he was certainly the most famous, um, who published this paper in The Lancet, which is the, the premier British medical journal that argued that the vaccine for what is MMR, so measles, mump, and rubella, that this is the cause of autism. And he had all of these scientific arguments. Uh, and then he gives a press conference. There's a press conference that's held in, in the lobby of the hotel. Um, Wakefield had been, in, had been involved in a number of cases, legal cases, in which parents were suing because they believed that the, the vaccine had led to their child being diagnosed with autism. Um, at that press conference, there were other medical professionals that said, no, um, the science is wrong. There's not this cause and effect. But this hit, and it hit at a time when doctors were more able to diagnose autism. We were starting to talk about the autistic spectrum, and parents wanted someone to blame. They wanted someone to point the finger at. And here's Andrew Wakefield with his study of 12 pre-chosen children who he knew with no control subjects, who said, the reason that your child is suffering this horrible, horrible condition of autism is because of this vaccination. And the numbers of parents that allowed their pediatrician to give their children that vaccination just plummeted. Despite the medical science community immediately arguing against Wakefield's claims, his ideas found a platform more powerful than any medical journal, Celebrity Endorsement. During the late 1990s, Jenny McCarthy was mostly known as a Playboy playmate, comedic actress, and television personality. But that all changed in 2007 when she went public about her son being diagnosed with autism. Influenced by Wakefield, she warned the world of a connection between vaccines and her son's disorder. Of course, most famously, Jenny McCarthy, um, a, a former Playboy bunny who goes on the Oprah Winfrey, uh, because Jenny McCarthy's son was, was autistic. And again, as a mother, she was looking for answers. She was looking for reasons for why, in fact, her, her child was autistic. In February 2010, the medical journal that originally published Wakefield's claims, The Lancet, completely retracted his 1998 paper, citing several incorrect elements. The same year, the UK General Medical Council found Wakefield guilty of ethical violations, dishonesty, and irresponsibility in his research. Wakefield was removed from the United Kingdom Medical Register. In January 2011, the British Medical Journal published a series of investigative articles on Wakefield revealing deliberate fraud and falsified facts in his 1998 paper. He had chosen data to suit his claims. Uh, it was finally, I think, 2010, 2011, that the Lancet retracted um, the, this, this uh, paper by Andrew Wakefield. But by that point, the damage had been done um, and it's growing. It's tapping in today to the health food movement, the organic movement, the nat natural life, the homeopathic movement. Anna Muldoon is a researcher in public health and a PhD candidate at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. She believes there was a psychological component to that moment in the anti-vaccine movement, and the moment has persisted. Autism is an incredibly frustrating disease for parents because we understand so little. And so offering an explanation for that was psychologically helpful for a lot of people, even if the explanation turns out to have been completely and utterly wrong. I wish that it had been successfully quashed. Scientifically, 
absolutely, it has been well, fully, and utterly refuted. Vaccines do not cause autism. Socially, it still is around. It still is an incredibly common belief. It is one that comes up quite frequently in long-term anti-vaccine communities. Muldoon is a co-author of a recently published book, COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories, QAnon, 5G, The New World Order, and Other Viral Ideas. In her research, she's found that anti-vaccine sentiment has paradoxically grown in the wake of successful vaccination programs. For example, the polio vaccine was introduced in the U.S. in 1955, and ensuing vaccination efforts were so successful that the disease was declared eradicated in the U.S. in 1979. Anti-vaccine sentiment really started to rise once we didn't have constant outbreaks of visible and terrifying diseases. You know, while there have always been people that resisted vaccination for a variety of reasons or inoculation, as we've discussed, the sorts of really all vaccines are unnecessary or all vaccines are dangerous sentiments we see now start after people were living in a world where that was something you, you could believe. Lower rates of daily infectious disease as a kind of constant background of deaths or creation of disability in the case of polio enables a different way of seeing how we live with disease. It's less terrifying when it's not a constant background. Muldoon believes greater familiarity with diseases and their potential for horrific consequences were a factor in how the public reacted to the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, widely considered the deadliest pandemic in human history. There were no effective influenza vaccines at the time, 100 years ago, but there were public health measures that needed to be followed, including mask wearing, social distancing, and shutdown of places like schools, churches, and theaters. In a lot of cases, people were pretty much willing to do what they needed to do. And there, there was a very practical feeling of whatever we can do to slow this down. I think it's worth remembering that in 1918, people were still very used to living in balance with disease. This is a moment where the majority of children did not survive infancy because of infectious disease. Humans were very used to the idea that one, disease was an ever-present thing, but two, you had to do whatever you could to save yourself, save your family, save your children. And so in most cases, like now, people were willing to wear masks and not attend public events once they knew that that's what they needed to do. It wasn't always so clear. According to Professor Allison Meek, in the 1800s, prior to the Spanish flu pandemic, there were already organized anti-vaccine efforts in the U.S. in the form of anti-vaccination societies. This was certainly grassroots. They were among just general individuals, mothers and fathers who were concerned, who got neighbors involved, who got bigger groups involved. You would also see religious leaders. Even then, there was a monetary issue involved that you could join one of these societies by sending 50 cents or, or a dollar. The phrase that is used is bodily autonomy, that God had created your body the way that he intended. And so you are not to inject 
foreign substances into your body. Um, so you would get this perhaps at a church service or an afternoon tea that you would go to after the sermon itself. The 1800s was also a year there was a lot of social movements that were taking place, whether the abolition movement or the women's movement, there was a temperance movement, there was a, a, a prison reform movement. People used magazines, they used newspapers, they would do speeches. Uh, they could go to a community hall. Um, and this was a way, I mean, again, scale is much different than what it is today, but it was an effective way to get these messages out. The basis for what we now know of as vaccination was established by the English physician and scientist Edward Jenner in 1796 as a solution to smallpox. But before those developments, inoculation methodology was examined in Boston in 1722, by a Protestant minister, Cotton Mather, and a black slave named Onesimus. Anna Muldoon describes the story of Cotton Mather and Onesimus as one of her favorites in her historical research. This uh, man named Cotton Mather had a slave named Onesimus who knew how to inoculate people for smallpox through a cut in the skin. So basically, you would take material from someone who had had a mild case of smallpox, make a slice, usually somewhere in the forearm, and put that material in it. Usually, this gave people a mild case of smallpox, and they would then be immune. Boston was terrified of smallpox. So Onesimus teaches Cotton Mather how to do this, and Cotton Mather starts promoting smallpox inoculation as soon as the first cases of smallpox are identified. And there were a lot of concerns that came up that may not sound unfamiliar. A lot of people believed that humans interfering in a smallpox outbreak was attempting to avoid God's punishment for sin and argued against inoculation because it was human interference in the divine plan. All of this became so contentious that at some point, someone attempted to set Cotton Mather's house on fire by throwing a brick wrapped in burning oil-soaked rags through his window with a note on it that said, I'll inoculate you with this, you dog. From the earliest days of inoculation, it was always controversial within many societies. Not all, but many. I think the the fears that existed then are in many ways not that dissimilar to some of the fears that exist now. Humans have some pretty consistent concerns with risk. Anything that goes into your body, humans are always really concerned about, and risk communication has to be very careful. Genetically modified foods, vaccines, chemicals in food and water and air, all of those pull on some really deep human concerns about our bodies and our safety and bodily integrity that I'm not sure have changed that much over time. In her examination of written materials of that era, three centuries ago, Muldoon has found that Cotton Mather himself, as a man of deep religious faith, had misgivings about inoculation, even as he promoted it. What's interesting is that the conversation kind of went in a theological direction around that debate. 
A lot of the people involved ended up convinced that human intelligence was a gift from God, and therefore it was acceptable to use human intelligence to address the ills of the world, including disease. Not everyone did. You will still see occasionally arguments appear in online or in-person conversations around vaccines and medical interventions that basically argue the anti-inoculationist line that is visible in those debates in the 1720s. The idea is that God gave the human body the ability to heal, and who are we to interfere with that? There are fabulous screaming matches on the floor of the Boston City Council. There are endless letters going back and forth. The Twitter of the time was these small pamphlets that people would print and sell for very little money. There were many of them going back and forth, arguing both sides. Actually, the debate also appears in Cotton Mather's diaries, where he's arguing with himself about what he thinks. It's a really interesting moment, both in medical and scientific history. He was a pastor, actually, and he believed that preventing death was absolutely aligned with his faith. But when people started really pushing the line that humans shouldn't interfere with punishment for sin, he himself struggled with that. And obviously, he ended up coming down on the side of human intelligence is a sign that we're supposed to use it to improve the world. But he didn't get there instantaneously. Such theological dialogues in the Age of Enlightenment were just one episode where religion and science collided at the vanguard of efforts against widespread disease. Muldoon points out that the profound influence of religion on public responses to pandemics can be traced not just centuries ago, but millennia ago into biblical times and ancient times. Pretty much for as long as disease has existed, humans have had explanations for it that blame others. Whether the explanations are mythological or religious or conspiracy-based, humans have tried to make sense of disease as a punishment for some social failing or caused by a group that is a minority in whatever society is experiencing the outbreak, that's really been interestingly consistent over time. There have definitely been consistent lines of thought that disease appears when humans are particularly out of line with a religious philosophy. But if we can see a through line between modern day needle fears and fears of divine punishment from thousands of years ago, what does that bode for our attitudes in the future? Is anti-vaccine sentiment an expression of something ingrained in human nature? Is it something we'll never get over? I wish that I could tell you exactly how to refute that in our societies and in our cultures. Well, I am a bit out of ideas on how we end the line of thought at this point. It pulls on kind of deep fears, and so it keeps circulating. We have plenty of scientific evidence, and that's not doing it. So I continue to seek methods of shifting that conversation. I just haven't found the perfect one yet. Those fears that have kept anti-vaccine ideas alive aren't the only ones fueling problematic movements. 
In our next episode, we'll talk about the thriving modern underworld of COVID-19 conspiracies and their possible origins. Reporting and narration for this episode of COVID Conspiracies by Dalson Chen. Our producers are Carson Jarama, Jacob Dubay, and Bryce Hall. Original music and artwork by Bryce Hall. I'm Anik Bodin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>